here uh, for worship this morning. And if you are visiting, we, what we're doing now during the time of the sermon, we like to, uh, when we can, go through books of the Bible or, or portions of books of the Bible and not hop around too much. So this, uh, this fall we've been in the book of James. It's a letter. It's an old letter, even though it appears later in the New Testament. It's an older document. And uh, we've been in this this fall, and this morning we're in part of chapter 1 and at the beginning of chapter 5, and the, the texts are in the order of worship, if you just want to follow there. Um, as I looked at this text for this week, I thought about a quote I'd come across, and, and when I did some research, I found out that I've been quoting, saying that someone said it who did not say it. This quote I'd heard attributed to Martin Luther, and I found out Martin Luther didn't say this. But somebody did, so let's read it. Here's a quote that Martin Luther did not say, but someone said. Uh, but, but I think this is right on. If I profess with loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. And that really is true across the board. You know, all cultures, all places at all times, all people groups have different strengths and weaknesses. And the gospel, when it comes into that, you know, that nation, that culture, that, that people group, it's going to push on certain things. And in different groups, different places, certain things are going to be harder, harder to dislodge. And I thought about that text in light of, uh, or that, that quote in light of this morning's text because it... Uh, it put this text pushes. It really does. And as we've said going through James, James is not afraid to tell you what he thinks. James is not afraid of imperatives to say, here's what God's people need to do. Do this. But um, his tone is as severe, if I can use that word, in this text as I think at any point in the whole letter. And let me say this before I read it. As you hear these words, it may feel like either for me individually or for downtown Prez as a local church that there's some kind of ulterior motive, you know. And here, here's what I want to say to you. This text, almost by two millennia, is older than any ideology that might come to mind. I mean, whether you're thinking about communism or capitalism you know, or the Occupy movement or whatever. This text said what it said, and it says what it says, and it's much older than any of us. And part of, of being uh, people and being a church that aren't up over the Word but are under the text, the text is over us, is just simply to come to it. It's kind of like we sang, just sang about in a spirit of submission and saying, let it say what it says, and if it rubs up against my preferences, then so much the worse for my preferences. Because the gospel needs to go where the gospel needs to go. We're going to start in James chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, and then we're going to make our way to chapter 5, verse 1. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation... And the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes. 
so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters that have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we cannot pray for fictional people. We pray for our real selves. And so for we who are seated here this morning, those of uh, more meager incomes and those of average incomes and those of significant income with greater means, uh, let your word have its way with us and feed us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, a story, kind of a sub-story to the passing of Steve Jobs, which has been such a, uh, it's just been a major dominant recurring motif in the news the last, uh, last month or so. A sub-story to that are uh, things that have come out about Apple's practices that conflicted with this just, you know, high watermark of expressions of appreciation for really what Steve Jobs meant to, meant to our culture. And one of the stories that came out recently was um, uh, a company's factories in China had several sites, and they, they had to make new staff take a pledge, I've never heard of anything like this, not to commit suicide. And the reason for this was because of how prevalent suicide was becoming in some of these factories. These are factories where iPhones and iPads are assembled. And the suicides were attributable to uh, the work environment. The, the, the stress of it, uh, needs unmet, even um, a, a poison that had made its way into at least one factory to streamline a, a production process. Now, somebody could hear that or hear me using that example and go, okay, now let's, you know, let's not throw rocks at Apple, you know, in a sermon. You could say the exact same thing about things that went on in good old, you know, the good old South. You could say the same thing about a family farm in South Carolina during the Jim Crow era about, you know, the people doing this hard work to make these products come that bring all this profit and they get the shaft economically and they get the shaft Socially, we could say the exact same thing about our own backyard. And the point of James 5 is exactly. Exactly. That whether you're talking about sort of just the ultra big global level of corporate practice or whether you're talking about something much more regional, much more local, much closer to home, th these are manifestations of the human heart. 
And it's this. It's that halves tend to forget two parties. They tend to forget the have-nots. And they tend to forget the God who is the reason why they have. And James is very confrontational in this text to say this. If that is the disposition of your heart, and you do not have to have seven figures, eight figures, nine figures to qualify for this. It can, it, it's, it's us. That if this is the posture of the heart, you are, you are fattened for the day of slaughter. And there's really no advantage to playing that down. So here's what I want to look at. And the hope is that with, with what we could call an oracle of woe, we can also hear good news. You know, prophets in the Old Testament, we tend to think of them as foretelling, you know, telling the future. And sometimes God used them to do that. But most of what prophets did was foretell. They just tell you what the will of God is for you. They tell you God's message. And there were two big types of messages, oracles. There was the oracle of blessing. That was the one you wanted, but it's usually not the one people got. Uh, the more common one was the oracle of woe. And we really don't have an English term that captures what that word means, but it's something along the lines of be alarmed at what is headed your way by the hand of God. This is an oracle of woe, but there's good news here if we will listen. We who have more than we think. Now, two things I want to look at is this. First off, God is the definer of wealth. The second thing is God is the reverser of wealth. God's the definer of wealth. God's the reverser of wealth. First off, what do we mean that God's the definer of wealth? And it means this, is that God, He's, he's the way that anyone who builds wealth, builds wealth. He ultimately is the source of it. But from the beginning, He has set the terms for what wealth should be and shouldn't be. What we should do with it, but what we have to be careful of with it. Now, a classic expression of this is in the Old Testament law. It's in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, that's, uh, that's the last of the five books of Moses. And it comes right before the Israelites are going to leave the wilderness. They're going to cross the Jordan River. And they're going to go into the promised land. So we're talking people who their cultural history is slavery and not being landowners. And life is crummy. And then it's 40 years in the wilderness, and that's pretty crummy, and that's nomadic. They're about to pass into this promised land, and they're going to get their own land, and their own vineyards. They're going to have their own turf. And so God says this, you're going to have this, but be careful. And here's what he says. This is Deuteronomy chapter 8, beginning in verse 7. It says, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey. And that you might be kind of going, at this point, because it just kind of sounds like a you know, depiction of a nice garden. Understand that when they heard fig trees, wheat, olives, they're thinking, cha-ching. That's the economy, along with what you like to eat. Uh, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. 
and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. And when this was read publicly, don't you know these ex-slaves are like high-fiving each other? Then God says this. This is verse 17. In light of that, beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers as it is to this day. Now, we need to hear both sides of that. Because the Bible does not glorify poverty. It doesn't say, isn't it great not to have enough? Uh, in, in our midweek Bible studies that we've been having this fall, we've been in Proverbs, and there are quite a few Proverbs that talk about poverty is tough. It is bitter. It will make people who profess to, to love you and to be your friends back away from you. The plight of the poor is rough. So Scripture does not glorify it. When you have the ability to pay bills and pay a mortgage and buy stuff and get the music you want or get the furniture you want, that's a gift from God. But here's what he's saying. There's something about the human heart that when he enables us to do that, that we start to think as we look around at our things and we think about our things, that we take on a disposition of, well, you know what that comes from? That comes from getting up an hour and a half before everybody else. That comes from having good instincts when other people were chumps. That comes from doing the hard work on the front end in school and in an internship, working under people who are smart to learn how to be smart. In other words, to think, this really came from me. And God is saying, your ability to know to get up early or physically to do so, your ability to get that education, your ability to know who to intern under, your ability to have the good idea or to have the good instinct or to know the right people to connect with, that came from me. It did not find its origin with you. The tendency is to think that came from me. God says, I'm the giver of wealth. And there's no guilt trip with this. He says, you're going to eat and you're going to be full and you're going to have your own vineyard and you're going to have your own land and there's clean water and there's copper and it's going to be awesome. He is generous. But they're gifts. They're not God. He's the definer of wealth. All right. He's the reverser of wealth. Now, what does that mean? Because James sounds a lot like not only the Old Testament, but an early part of the New Testament when he says this. Look, look in verse 9, chapter 1, verse 9. There's a reversal. What does he say? Let the lowly brother, and he's thinking here not just of lowly disposition, humble, but also financially. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Now, I'll tell you what that sounds a lot like. That sounds a lot like a, an excerpt from a song that's going to get a lot more play in the weeks ahead. It's the Magnificat. What's the Magnificat? That's the song of Mary when the angel comes to her and tells her that she's going to give birth to the Messiah. And she, she just gives this expression of praise to God. And it's in uh, Luke chapter 1. Here is an excerpt from the Magnificat. 
And as she's responding, because again, she is this poor girl. When I say young woman, she was probably a young, poor woman. And she's never been to a Christian cantata. She, ne- she does not know how all this turns out. But she's been told this is what's going to happen. So she's taking this on faith. Part of her expression of praise is she says this. He, God, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And she's getting a front row seat to that. Who's going to give birth to the Messiah? This little girl without means. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones. He's exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. Where did Mary get that? Because that is a big theme in the Old Testament. God the reverser. The one who comes to the high and the mighty and reverses. The one who comes to the lowly and the downtrodden and reverses. And I don't know a stronger statement in all of Scripture about that. I mean, even more so than James or Mary, than Jesus. Let me read this. This is an excerpt. It sounds like the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, which, by the way, James keeps giving head nods to. But this is a parallel sermon in Luke chapter 6. And, you know, I don't want to be irreverent when I say this, but this is yet another text where, as a Christian, you find yourself wanting to explain away what Jesus said. Let's let the text say what the text says. Because, and the tendency when we hear this is to spiritualize it. Let the words be the words. He, Jesus, lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor. Now, what we're waiting on is, yeah, in spirit. He's making a spiritual point. In Luke, there is no addition. Blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And then a few verses later, but woe to you who are rich. For you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And uh, you kind of keep waiting for him to come behind it and, uh, and explain it away. And Jesus doesn't do that. And so then it doesn't become hard to see where, where James gets. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. It is no stronger than what Jesus said. Now, what do we do with this? Well, first, let's ask ourselves, who, <clears throat> what are the rich that James has in mind? What are they doing? What are they doing? What, you know, what, what is the nature of their life together? Look in this, this second paragraph. One thing is this. Look in the second part of verse 3. It's stockpiling stuff. And it's stockpiling things and money at the worst time you could. What does he say? You have laid up treasure in the last days. What does that phrase, in the last days, mean? Because that's very important. 
the last days is a recurring term in the New Testament. And it sounds to our ears like that would mean, <clears throat> you know, the days or the weeks just right before the return of Christ. But the thing is, the content of the New Testament is almost 2,000 years old. And the more you study it, here's what you realize. By the way, the phrase last days is in the Old Testament. The last days is talking about the last era of the history of redemption. And it's the one that we're in. It's the one that started with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are, if Jesus tarries for a thousand more years, who knows? We are presently in the last days. And what is James saying? The rich that I have in mind, they are stockpiling savings and investments and furnishings and stuff at the very time when there should be the greatest impulse to finance the spread of the Messiah's kingdom around the world. When the Messiah's kingdom is getting traction all over this world, the rich are financing their own kingdom. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. They're indulging themselves. Just, if I want to eat it, I'll eat it. If I want to buy it, I'll buy it. If I want to decorate that way, I'll decorate that way. If I want to go on that trip, I'll go. And James says this is tantamount to, uh, to the fattened calf eating just a little bit more. I think I'll have a little bit more feed. The third thing, though, is he says that the rich are giving to the poor financial, financial and what we could even call social injustice, relational injustice. How, how does he describe it? Look in verse 4. It says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And so, obviously, who he has in mind here are people with enough means that they have people who work for them. They have employees, or maybe in this setting they have slaves. In verse 6, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. And there's a very interesting phrase that's used here. It's at the end of verse 4. It says that the cries of the have-nots who are going through this, those cries, it may be in a closet or behind a plow or in our kind of setting in a factory, in a, in a crummy car on the way to a crummy job. The cries are going up, it says, to the Lord of hosts. That is a richly biblical term. The Lord of hosts is God. Who are the hosts? It's the angelic armies. Why is it sobering that James says these cries that maybe the affluent aren't hearing, they're going up to the Lord of hosts? What is the, what's the implication? It's that the Lord is coming with His armies. To fight with whom? To fight with those aligned against Him, which is those who don't need Him, which is typically the haves. And when the Lord, with His almighty power, comes with His armies, how's that going to go? Now, that's, that's about as confrontational as you get. What are we supposed to do with this? And I, I want to aim this in different, in different places. Uh, first off, what if you're here this morning 
and you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and okay, maybe you're not in abject poverty, but you don't have a lot of means. You might be between jobs right now, or you're, you're underemployed, and you feel the strain. You even feel the strain that you can't be generous the way your heart really longs to be generous. What does James say? Chapter 1, verse 9, he says, Let the lowly brother... And that's a term. That's a technical term. Not every person is a brother. Every person bears the image of God, but it's the believer who's a brother. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Here's what that means. And this has come up over and over in the book of James, is that we will fight for the rest of our lives to live by faith, not by sight. And the Scriptures are grabbing us by the lapel saying, I want you to live by faith. I don't just want the content of what God has said to be somewhat real to you. I want it to trump how what is visible makes you feel that this is true. And the celebration that is just blowing through the pages of the New Testament is that Jesus, who was rich, but for our sakes, He becomes poor. And at the end of His life, family has backed away from Him. I mean, Mary's somewhere there, but she can't help Him. Disciples have fled. Rome is angry at Him. Judaism is angry at Him. He's on a cross in a city that should have loved Him and worshipped Him and welcomed Him. He's on a cross outside that city, kicked out, without clothes on, beaten and pierced and dying. And why is He doing that? And it says in 2 Corinthians, He is doing that so that God's people will be rich. Not just spiritually, although that we are, lavishly, but that one day, physically, actually, tangibly, wealth, abundance, the cup of blessing that overflows, that you drink forever, and you never, you never drink it. You never finish it. That, that this God, He will be our provider in this world. He is near to those who are financially strapped. He is near to those who are tired of just getting by. But James is saying this, the lowly brother has a reason to celebrate, is that God is going to be glorified when you who had the crummy car, <laughs> if any car, you who had the crummy job, you who could not be generous even in the way that you longed to be generous, you who every time you kind of put one step ahead, it seemed like you had to take two steps back because of the, the bill. God will glorify Himself through you when you end up looking for an eternity, uh, something beyond what celebrities look like. He's going to do that. And if that sounds otherworldly or pie in the sky, Jesus and the apostles were never embarrassed to scream it from the rooftops that we will be co-heirs with Christ. 
What if you're here and you're a brother and, or sister and you do have means? Now, the thing about the rich is they typically don't think they're rich because they know people who are richer. What, is, what does this text mean for you? Is it saying that you must feel guilty about your means? That's not how Scripture traffics. What is it saying? It's saying this. You, of all people, must be ruthlessly honest with yourself. Because here's the first thing we must say. If you are here and you have great means and you are in Christ, the first thing that you should acknowledge is that you are practically an anomaly. And if you think that I'm getting rhetorically overcharged when I say that, Jesus said it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. It is abnormal for the haves to bow their knees and say, not my will, but yours be done. Build your kingdom, not mine. Uh, Your kingdom come, my kingdom go. It is the hardest for the haves to say that. If you are a have and God has brought you to that point, praise the Lord for His mercy upon us. Because that globally is an abnormality. But it also means this. If, if you have the sort of means where people work for you, work under you, do they know by the wages that you pay that you have a great boss? that you have a great master? Do they know by the sort of benefits that you provide in their package that you have a great master? That you bow your knee to someone who is more powerful than you? If, if people work for us, they should feel the ripple effects of one who has been so generous and so lavish with us. And the beautiful thing is, that doesn't have to be a guilt trip. It's saying, reflect to them in some pale way how God has dealt with us. That if our cup overflows, shouldn't they, in some sense, have sips of it too? What if you're here, and you don't know what you are spiritually, but you're pretty sure that you're not a Christian and you, you do have means. Maybe they're means that, that uh, you've been allowed to come up with, produce. Maybe it's means that came to you. I don't know. I, I would do you a disservice if I don't say this one more time. James has already said in this letter that there is one lawgiver and judge, and he is able to save and he's able to destroy if you're the kind of person who, because of your attainments, can, like, give gifts and, like, you know, for nonprofits or whatever, you can be, like, the platinum-level giver, blah, 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 and have your name put there. If you're the kind of person who has employees, if you're, if you're the kind of person who's asked to head up things and chair things and sit on boards, whether that's at the business level or the nonprofit level, understand this. God is able to destroy God is able to destroy. And we may, you know, we may have smirked when we heard the words that silver and gold corroding and rusting. We might have been thinking to ourselves, well, that was written by an idiot because silver and gold don't, they don't do that. Until the judgment. 
until the judgment in which God, to remake the heavens and the earth, He dismantles this one. And in a sense, James is saying this, um, if, if you feel like you can dodge this bullet, do me a favor. Go to the dryer in your house and take out the lint screen and look at the lint and understand this is a preview of your investments. This is a preview of your resume. He will dismantle it all. But, here's the beautiful thing. He is that powerful. He is that just. He is that holy. Everything he says comes true. But what did James also say? Just a few verses before this. Humble yourselves and he'll exalt you. Draw near to him and he will draw near to you. Here's the deal. Whether you're here this morning and you have limited means and you're very stretched or moderate means or great means, the takeaway for all of us is to get on our knees before God and say, what would I have had you not given it to me? And it is the bent of my heart, even as you've shown me mercy, it is the bent of my heart to finance my own kingdom building Would your kingdom come? Would my kingdom go? Have mercy on me. And James and Jesus and other scriptures say, if we humble ourselves before him, he will exalt us. And who knows what it's going to mean? What would it look like if revival... I don't mean a revival meeting. I mean a revival of the Holy Spirit. What would it look like if it came to Greenville? It might look like a great deal of downsizing. A great deal of downsizing. Not because God wants you to feel guilty about the rooms that you have or the stuff that you have necessarily, but it's to say, you know what? If there are like two rooms in my house that no one ever goes in and no one uses, maybe the furnishing and the decorating, and the heating, and the cooling, and the property taxes of that extra space, maybe that's for something else than just empty space. I mean, who knows what it means? We finance a kingdom, either ours or his. When the gospel grabs people, it touches money. When the gospel grabs Zacchaeus, a huckster, a tax collector. He didn't just say, you know what? I believe in Jesus now. He said, I believe in Jesus now and anybody that I've given the shaft to, I'll pay them back fourfold. Which means he virtually committed economic suicide. Because it was worth it. The gospel had him. We've got to cry out that the the gospel would have our hearts in that way. I want to leave you with this. Uh, I, I exchanged two emails, or got two emails this week from uh, an acquaintance in Malawi. And Malawi, even by African standards, is, is a, a tough place. Uh, on, the, on the lists of affluence and GDP and that kind of stuff, Malawi is way, way, way down there. He's a missionary in Malawi. And um, he sent out an email to people on his email list just to say, our morale is low. Water, uh, electricity, 
just, just the basic necessities, it's so touch and go. My morale is down. Other missionaries, their morale is down. And he didn't say it in a guilt trip way. He just said, we need your prayers. I mean, think about how you feel five days after an ice storm. And think about, even if you're down from that, really sweet people three days into an ice storm hate each other. And, but think about it, even against that backdrop, you're kind of seeing the, you know, the power trucks around town. You know that like, there's forward motion. You know that things are going to get better. There is no such assurance in Malawi. And he said, pray for us. Emailed him back just a sentence or two to say, hey, thank you. Thanks for the update. Praying for you. And, uh, and he emailed back, and it really it caught me off guard. He said, you know, I listen to your sermons, which is weird to me. You know, that someone, I mean, not for him to do that, just in Malawi. I'm, hey, Big's voice is somewhere in Malawi. It's weird to me. But he said, you know, I think in some ways you've got the harder gig. He said, the gospel is hard to hear when your stomach is full and your house is full. And, and, and I know this guy, and I, he is not a guilt trip guy, but I know what he was saying. And what was he saying? We're richer than we think. We're richer than we think. And... The, the remedy is not to feel bad about it. The remedy is for the gospel to come to us and say, yield. Humble yourselves before Him and He will exalt you. Draw near to Him and He will draw near to you. Let's pray that would be so. Amen. Oh, Father... What we want, please hear us, is not that we, live here, that we leave here and we leave as people who sort of got their spanking and sort of were made to feel that we were brought up short for a little bit and then we return to our ways and we do not humble ourselves before you, whatever our condition. We do not boast in our lowly condition. We do not think about the future glories that await your children. Lord, how we need the one, how we need the one who was rich and yet became poor, that we through his poverty might be made rich. If that is not real to us, burst into our lives. If that has not touched the whole of our lives, burst into our affections. Not only to know these things, but to feel them. Grant us repentance. Grant us generosity. Grant us outreaching hearts to Greenville. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.